Welcome to History Talk, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective at Ohio State University. This is the history podcast for everyone, and I'm your host, Patrick Payandi. And I'm your other host, Leticia Wiggins. To start off this episode, as you know, Patrick, I want to begin with a simple question. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say money in politics? Well, for me, I gotta say corruption. I think of smoke-filled back rooms, politicians making deals, lobbyists taking those politicians out to kind of extravagant dinners and parties and things. I also think of the 19th century robber barons. I think of Nixon's dirty tricks and Watergate. Those are the first things that come to mind. I see what you're saying there, and another answer might have been the Supreme Court case, Citizens United from 2010, which, to simplify it greatly, ruled that money equals free speech. The case, as well as the fraught history that seems to develop whenever you mix money in politics, sparked popular outrage since it redefined the landscape of campaign finance reform. There certainly is a lot going on recently in this arena, with political action committees, or PACs, and even super PACs, making headlines and featuring on The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Things are so bad that the leader of the Federal Election Commission has called the organization, charged with overseeing how money is spent in elections, quote, worse than dysfunctional. But money in politics is inevitable, too. Campaign managers need to be paid, advertisements purchased, etc., etc. It's certainly not all doom and gloom, right? Well, hopefully History Talk can help. On today's show, we've asked three specialists on United States history to help us make sense of what's been happening with campaign finance reform, not only recently, but throughout American history. And maybe they can help us understand why all of it matters to the average citizen, too. So stay tuned. I'm Stephen Kahn. I'm one of the editors of Origins. I'm Mark Holger. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Human Sciences at Ohio State University uh, and have written on American politics for Origins a few times uh, recently. I'm Paula Baker. I teach in the History Department, and I study American political history. All right. Thanks for joining us all today. So money and politics have been intertwined in the American political system from the very beginning, right? So we're kind of wondering what have been the moments of big change in the relationship between political campaigns, money, and we're kind of looking for maybe a little bit of a roadmap here to get us started. And Paula, if you wanted to start us off, maybe. Yeah, okay. I guess I would give us three phases. Uh, Oh, excellent. The first would start us out maybe in the 1790s and would give us a politics of patrons. Where uh, here I think of there's this wonderful stuff that Alan Taylor did on uh, something that he called making interest, where candidates, generally the local notables, went out, hired people of the of the middling sort to go out and campaign for them, assembling letters in the meantime, indicating that they had all of this support, so on and so forth. And then election day would arrive and uh, out would go the slaves to pick up the voters uh, with the slaves well stocked with liquor uh, on their way to a voting place. Always a good way to get votes. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. Uh, liquor was the um, even more than kind of payoffs with uh, inside deals on land. Liquor was the real draw. Uh, and uh, off we went. Uh, that, if we, as we might imagine, uh, got to seem a bit less uh, than, let's say, oh, small R Republican, something that was suitable to the citizens of a, of a new republic. And we move on to a politics of patronage rather than patrons, where uh, the people who worked for government um, who had, in that sense, uh, a, a real interest, this was the spoil system where people who wound up with government jobs both 
supported with campaign cash uh, contributions to the party and also work on election day. We could say this one lasts until, yeah, uh, national level, 1880s, 90-ish, local, state level, longer than that, to uh, politics of consultants and advertisers and all of that, we can take that from about the 19-teens and carry it on to the present. Those are the three phases I would see. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of us, when we teach this to our students, point to that election of 1896 as that moment of transition between what Paula described as that second phase, that that system of patronage, to that system of consumerism, really, where uh, we have advertising, we have consultants, we have centrally organized campaigns, and so on and so forth. During that campaign in 1896, uh, when William McKinley's operation is being run by Mark Hanna, Teddy Roosevelt, who is himself a young rising star in the Republican Party, writes a letter to to a friend complaining that William McKinley is being sold like a patent medicine. And that's really, Hmm. I think, captures that sense that politics is now part of the emerging consumer culture uh, and consumer economy in the United States. And my observation to that has always been Teddy Roosevelt was criticizing patent medicine almost as much as he was <laughs> politics. Um, and the one of the things I find interesting, maybe a point I would like to make, is that uh, when I hear, as a consumer of political information and, and political commentary, when I hear criticism of the way campaigns are financed, it's not uniformly, but it's largely from the left. And it's largely uh, based ideologically in taking abstract offense to the idea that someone with X plus one dollars has X plus one political speech. But speaking as an American historian, I have a hard time thinking of a specific partisan outcome, a specific election that I'm deeply convinced created a different outcome because of N plus one spending of a certain type. So, for example, the 1896 election was essentially rerun two more times um, with essentially the same outcome, where the Democrats put up William Jennings Bryan against McKinley again in 1900. Over and over. Over and over again. (laughs) Um, And if you look at the electoral maps, it's about the same. And uh, when you look at changes in the way the election of 1896 was financed versus the previous generation of presidential elections... It's very easy to understand Roosevelt's critique. And when you look at the structure of party politics in the early 20th century, it's harder to make a case that corporate evil won because of their new patterns of, of, uh, of spending on elections. Seems right. Uh, in 1896, it was a matter of more of it, more money, uh, in part because... Uh, it was easy to scare the crap out of donors, uh, and so much so that the, that Hannah wound up giving refunds. But the pattern of fundraising and centralizing campaigns had been true in the previous two elections, at least. Well, I do think, though, that, that, that there's a reason that Karl Rove admired 
William McKinley and the campaign of 1896 more th that was his political touchstone um, and so I think there is some extent to which some degree to which that did signal a shift in the way we organized our campaigns from an earlier 19th century version which is much more local much more decentralized much more um, uh, homemade if that's the way you want to put it to something which really does become more professionalized um, with the, at, as the 20th century rolls forward. And looking at the three-part story that Paula kind of introduced to us, and Mark, you mentioned people were starting to sort of see this as an N plus one dollar, you know, sort of mm -hmm. issues with this campaign finance reform. And we were wondering if you could highlight the instances, if there are any, when campaign finance reforms have su succeeded. Well, it dep depends on what you mean by succeeded. There was a brief period of time beginning in the mid-70s when in the national level there was a kind of – it was kind of a Rube Goldberg elaborate version of publicly financed, financed uh, presidential campaigns. Um, in 1976, I believe it was, the Supreme Court ruled political money was speech and that you couldn't limit – the amount of money an individual spent on their own political campaign or the amount of money an individual spent to get out a certain kind of political message. And for a while, there was a system of matching funds where presidential candidates would essentially agree to, forego, agree to limitations on those rights in exchange for the matching funds. Um, and that more or less disappeared in 2008 when the Obama administration, the Obama campaign, I should say, um, uh, declined to opt into that. There was some public financing of politics. That was a period when it was. But again, I have a hard time isolating that as a period in which progressives had a long-term period of achievement because uh, the campaigns were publicly financed. I think the 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 question, though, Mark, for me is whether a quantitative difference. So if we were to think about a graph and we were to look at, at what got spent on campaigns in 1900 and compared that to what's going to get spent in 2016, that graph's going to go up pretty mm -hmm. steadily. So at some point, does, does a quantitative change become a qualitative change? And I don't know that the issue is simply whether or not you can track whether it, you can buy an election or not, because mm -hmm. I think that's what the political scientists are really um, concerned about. Do, can, can we correlate spending money and electoral victories? And the, and the answer is probably not. I think yeah. you're exactly right. But I think there might be some other issues at stake, which, which are both just as important, but also more long-term than any given election cycle. So, for example, we've already discussed the way in which the structure of politics and political organization changed mm -hmm. as as more money, more organization, more advertising and so forth moved in. I also can't help but wonder whether the increasing amount of money that flows through campaigns isn't indirectly somehow responsible for the, what do you want to call it, alienation, disengagement, disenchantment, cynicism that Americans have with politics altogether. I wonder if you could put those two things on a graph and notice that they're inverse to each other. The more money we spend, the more cynical we get. I doubt that's true. Um, mostly, when we think about a kind of, let's, let's call the 1970s peak cynicism, uh, that's uh, exactly our point when spending on campaigns is, is beginning, is, is in this, at least presidential campaigns, this one little trough. 
some indications of lessened cynicism uh, had to do with the Obama campaigns where we broke through the ceilings on political spending mm-hmm. altogether. So I'm not sure if they relate well, necessarily. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, but let me let me ask the question a different way. What's the case to be made that it is good to have unlimited money sloshing through political campaigns? It, well, it depends on what you want. If what you want is competition, uh, money will get you that. Uh, we saw that in the last election cycle. We were talking about this briefly earlier in the on the Republican side where otherwise Romney probably would have uh, gotten the nomination uh, without much in the way of with, – with sort of weak competition and, and off uh, – and it would have – and that camp – and the whole Republican nomination campaign uh, primary would have disappeared. But uh, because of Sheldon Adelson, I guess that – mm-hmm. uh, and the rest, the kind of various anybody but Romneys were given a kind of second life – and the whole thing went on longer than it would have otherwise. Yeah. So you, you could essentially get competition. You could see this for that for that matter in 1972 with George McGovern, who did have a small donor campaign, but that small donor campaign in turn existed because of Stuart Mott and others who uh, contributed to his uh, campaign mm-hmm. early on and kept that idea, you know, kept the McGovern idea afloat. And he probably, he certainly wasn't the choice of the kind of mainstream party management otherwise. Adelson is also a pretty good uh, uh, case study in the argument that at least at the national level, there is uh, decreasing marginal value in the next dollar spent. <laughs> if anybody, which is which is easy to laugh at, but, uh, but to the extent that I'm conversant in, in how political scientists study this, Political scientists are suspicious at the level of national presidential elections that there's a lot of marginal utility in N plus one dollars relative to where we are now. Mm-hmm. And maybe it might be worth asking as, as also a roundabout way of answering your original question, if you think of Sheldon Adelson's dollars as spent on President Newt Gingrich – that's obviously the deadweight loss. Right, right, right. If you think of the the, but one thing that that Adelson has been able to do with his personal fortune is that he keeps uh, an issue important to him, uh, namely a certain kind of attitude about our relationship with Israel. Right. He yep. he keeps that a core part of the Republican Party uh, brand. The Koch brothers keep. Uh, uh, opposition to taxes in and of themselves, a core proposition of the Republican brand. But there is a structural conversation to be had about whether in the medium to long term, the the structural possibility of a big spender over a lifetime might have an impact on what politicians mm-hmm. in one of the two major parties have to agree to even to be in the arena in the first place. Yeah, and I, I also just to follow up on Paula's observation, which is uh, which is really interesting. Um, at the national level, at the presidential level, money brings you competition. But do you think, Paula, that at the at the at the lesser levels, let's say even at, at the U.S. Senate, but certainly at House level, money keeps people out. That that knowing that if you're going to run even for a, a rinky-dink congressional district somewhere in Nebraska, or you're going to court have, seat, you know, yeah, you're going to have to come up with uh, three million dollars. Is that is that in effect shutting people out of the process and making it less competitive? Yes and no. Where yes, in uh, particularly in, you know incumbents in particular will show that they have uh, you know an enormous amount of money that makes it um, implausible that. Uh, 
someone else would uh, really have a chance to to enter in. But uh, two things: if that incumbent is for other reasons. Uh, unpopular, uh, either because of an issue position taken or something like that. The chances of attracting outside money and raising the amount of money is possible. Uh, inc- uh, non-incumbents tend to have to outraise incumbents uh, mm-hmm. yeah, by, by right. quite a bit. Yeah. And so arguably the ability to raise funds yeah. um, matters for competition and at the local level too. Otherwise, uh, it, I grew up in a in northeastern Pennsylvania, where uh, when I was a kid, more or less uh, forever, there was a congressman uh, named Dan Flood, who is chair of Ways and Means. I remember Dan, Dan Flood. Dan Flood was around forever. <laughs> I, I mean, Pope's <laughs> o- older than the Flood. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a great name for Ways and Means chairman, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah, I mean, Popes came and went, but Dan Flood <laughs> stayed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, no. Um, that was a, an older system of, of incumbency right. where nobody in their right mind would be able to challenge flood. Yeah, uh, and but, something that may at, begin happening, and there's some rudimentary evidence that this is starting to happen. The converse of there being a limited uh, uh, marginal utility to the next dollar spent on president is that if you got a big pile of money and you want to have an impact, you might start spending it elsewhere. And there are some early signs that the big pools of of election private election finance capital, for lack of a better phrase, are beginning to be deployed uh, are beginning to flow from national to local mm-hmm. in some sure. cases yeah. very local there, if, yeah there's a, a democratic project now uh, aimed at state at, at winning back state houses and I'm even thinking about something more narrow than that. Last spring, there was a ballot levy here in Columbus, Ohio about the zoo. And the zoo wanted to, what did they want to build downtown? They wanted to build, they wanted to build something downtown. So they put a levy on. And Americans for Prosperity spent money opposing the Columbus Zoo levy. And Americans for Prosperity may well, you know, it's possible that they will eventually conclude that their marginal dollar is best spent not Right. On presidents, but but there's already some evidence that that money is beginning to flow into very very local things. Has the Citizens United decision fundamentally altered things, and and how has it done that from the past? What Citizens United did was to build on some other cases that have come up through the court uh, over the years, which enshrines the idea that. Spending money is a form of First Amendment expression and therefore protected by the First Amendment and therefore presumably cannot be restricted in the way that we don't restrict speech. I think there's a case that maybe hasn't even yet quite been argued this term, but it's coming up about whether lying is a a form of protected political speech. It's a case out of Ohio where the Ohio, Ohio has a law which essentially prohibits you from lying during a political campaign. The candidate who who broke this law has has sued that this is a form of political speech. I think this is going to wind up in the Supreme Court. So you can lie a lot and spend a lot of money if the court, <laughs> if the uh, case goes this way. Um, so I think there, so, but there there are two things it seems to me that are at work with Citizens United. One is this question of whether money is speech, and I think that really does just rub people the wrong way. And that's that's a constitutional question over which honest people can disagree. And indeed, it was pretty bitterly fought in the court's uh, decision in 2010. The other legal principle that's involved here, which which also troubles me a little bit, is the idea that the court should not reckon with 
the consequences of a decision. And this is, again, a, a something that legal people disagree over, but I think the court really was not interested in what the implications of unlimited spending might be to the political system. I think they decided they were only going to rule, the majority at any rate, only going to rule on this particular constitutional question in which they were building on things that already existed in the law. But again, my question would be, does a, does a, a quantitative change now translate into a qualitative change and I would I would worry that it that it does I'm not so sure uh, I mean the, given the trend lines I'm not sure if Citizens United has made that difference uh, in as much as we get to our dysfunctional Federal Election Commission and how it was the case that uh, these 501c3 organizations uh, these named after their, their bit in the tax code that uh, are at some level what, educational organizations or something like that, but uh, this is the example of the of the Karl Rove organization, um, American Crossroads. You know, existed before Citizens United and will carry on afterwards. And that would and there was and that was the model. And there were plenty of other organizations like that that entered that entered in that provided a way for. Uh, folks who wanted to contribute to campaigns without uh, necessary disclosure could do so. I mean, disclosure becomes the the issue here. And uh, a couple of things has always struck me, uh, have increasingly struck me about disclosure and the rest of the, what were really the early 20th century progressive era rules. One, primary elections. Secondly, this principle of disclosure, which came in through something called the Corrupt Practices Act, have increasingly come to collide with a campaign finance system that is ever larger, um, much more likely to be uh, easily searchable, uh, given internet tools and the like, you don't have to go to the county courthouse and mm-hmm. g- uh, go through piles of stuff. Where um, on one side you kind of lose another progressive era innovation, which is a secret ballot. Where right. oh hey yeah, uh, who did you know who gave where, and now we can reach back and um, you know tag somebody. Um, and I'm not sure if we necessarily really want to go there. That's one thing that troubles me about about disclosure. And secondly, the whole primary election process gets us in the United States a system that is ever so much more expensive than anyone else's right. because our campaign season goes on and on and on and we run two elections. That may just be a subset of the larger fact that secret as a modifier may be atrophying for reasons that don't have much to do with politics. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we have the secret ballot. On the other hand, I suspect that the two major parties already know how all of us in this room voted in the last election, which and, they managed we'll to figure out. And we'll vote for all elections to come. And... and when we finally went to vote, the phone stopped ringing and the email right. stopped coming. Mm-hmm. And and um, I find it creepy. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing, but I, I find I find it uh, part of a larger tectonic movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, perhaps not isolated to, to politics, and having more to do with the the multiple electronic devices containing GPS and consumer preferences that we all uh, that carry around with us as well. 
You know, there's a there's a, a different way to put this question that I think is is worth just keeping in mind. What the court has said in Citizens United and and elsewhere uh, that political speech is free speech, that spending money is free speech, and therefore they can't be regulated. But the flip side of the question here is whether the American people, through the people we elect to represent us, have um, a right, a legislative power to put restrictions on how we run our elections. And we restrict our elections in a variety of other ways. We restrict, we got a whole spate of voter ID laws that have been making their way through. And so it does seem to me that there's a conundrum here that on the one hand, some number of people would like some kind of campaign finance reform, and the court is closing off avenues through which to do that. And that seems to me to be a thwarting of a democratic impulse. I, I think uh, uh, traditionally for campaign finance reform, the uh, coalition has been Democrats and shall we call them independent Republicans. Uh, they've been the magic coalition at both the state and federal level. At the moment, I don't see where the energy Oh, I t- yes, uh, totally. Uh, on, yeah. On, yeah, on either side comes from. I mean, the uh, last the last big piece of campaign finance legislation, of course, was McCain-Feingold. Exactly. And in 2008, mm-hmm. John McCain kept claiming it was Frank McCain who passed that piece of law. He, he, w- he refused to acknowledge that he had anything to do with campaign mm-hmm. finance reform. So even those people mm-hmm. who passed the legislation don't want to touch it anymore. So I agree. There's and, no enthusiasm for it at that level. And uh, Democrats have been doing well enough in fundraising as, as we've – I don't see where the energy comes yeah, from. No, I, 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 Exactly. And with all of this in mind and all of this great background we have here, um, are there any last words on how will this 2016 presidential campaign look different potentially from others in the 20th and 21st centuries? I'm not seeing it. Uh, Although one difference here is that uh, certainly on the Republican side at this point, because it's hard to say how the Democratic side uh, through the primaries is going to shake out if it is Hillary Clinton alone or not. But uh, everyone setting up their uh, super PACs and all of that, at A, first of all, goes to the dysfunction of the Federal Election Commission. And secondly, it will keep a lot of these candidates afloat at a point when a chunk of the party leadership, the party adults, would prefer to see them go away. <laughs> I think that uh, one of the things we're also beginning to see if we if we move away from the White House and go to Capitol Hill for just a moment um, – Congress is essentially doing less and less as more and more time has to be spent fundraising. So terms for House members now really run to one year because then you spend the next year gearing up your next re-election campaign. And one-third of the senators at any given moment are playing what uh, a friend of mine uh, who's in the Senate in Delaware refers to as the dialing for dollars game because that's all – he's in Delaware – he doesn't have to actually. So you can drive, you walk can bike around for dollars in Delaware, but that's what they have to do now: is raise money all the time, constantly. Which means that they aren't doing the things that they're supposed yeah. to be doing, allegedly. Right now, we appear to be in a period, in sort of in the middle of a period of of long term structural stability and balance between the two party coalitions, which was also very strongly characteristic of the late nineteenth century. And that's a period – that's a sort of a, a long-term structural situation where you wind up having impassioned debates about uh, uh, access to the ballot, who is registered, how many Sundays can you vote, because most of the professionals in the system right now lived through 2000. 
and live in a, a period of party alignment where, where one more voter in the right precinct on the right day on the right election maybe has an impact. Right, right. And, and so we have these talks about deep structure. We have these talks about campaign finance and voter access and these other kinds of things. All right. I want to extend a thank you to our three guests, Stephen Kahn, Mark Horger, and Paula Baker, for joining us today on History Talk. Thanks so much. It was fun. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kong and Nicholas Bragg-Fogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Pachiandi and Leticia Wiggins. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.